Deuteronomy chapter 6 opens like this. It says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. Somebody say teach. That you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. That you might fear the Lord thy God and keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee and it, that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey." And we like this verse, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I'm thankful to know he is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them, again, somebody say teach. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Whose children? Thy children. Moses assumed that when you entered the promised land, you would begin to produce children. If I could take you very quickly to the book of Acts chapter 2, verse number 38. The Bible says that Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and to your children. Not your neighbor's children, not your friend's children. Peter assumed that when you received the promise of the Holy Ghost, that you would begin to produce children. I want to borrow my title tonight from a lesson that I, I taught in a Bible class well over a year ago. We're going to go a little different direction, but I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight on this subject with the help of the Lord. A culture for children. A culture for children. Would you put your Bibles down all across this room? Could we lift our hands to the Lord and welcome his presence into this place one more time? God, I thank you for meeting us in this place on a midweek Wednesday night. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint your servant. Lord, anoint our hearts to receive your word. I believe that you have a word for this congregation tonight. Lord, let us receive it with boldness and let us hear what you have to speak to us tonight. If you are going to receive the word tonight, would you lift up a hand clap of praise unto the Lord all across this place? Somebody shout hallelujah, and you may be seated in that precious name of Jesus. It was two months ago yesterday that we published uh, my new children's book, Male and Female Created He Them. And it's been so interesting to watch the response as those posts uh, began to be shared and the book began to move through our movement. Uh, I haven't been to a conference or camp meeting in the last couple of months where somebody hasn't come up and stopped me and said, thank you for, for what you're doing for the children. Thank you for, for this book that we can teach our children. We were at NAYC. Brother Anthony and I were uh, on a mission to go get the food. And it, uh, if you were there, you know that it was about 187 degrees outside. And I made the very smart decision to leave my undershirt on and put a long sleeve black shirt on over that undershirt. I, I make good life decisions. 
And we were over there by uh, the catering area, and they had the grills fired up. And I am, I am sweating profusely. I look like a mess. And a pastor's wife sees me from across the way, and she, she comes over, steps over the, the things, the chicken on the ground, and she shakes my hand. She said, I, I just want to thank you for what you're doing for our children. I'm standing there looking like an absolute hot mess. And I said, yes, ma'am. God, God bless you. Thank you for choosing now to come Come talk to me. But it's, I think that people are starting to wake up and realize how intentionally this world is after our children. I think people are starting to realize that the agenda of this world is targeting our children. Because the world understands that if they can get our children, that eventually they can get the church. And I think that there is a group of people who are starting to stand up and realize as intentionally as the agenda of this world is targeting our children, there has to be as intentional of a response from the church to stand to our feet and protect our children. Because without children, there is no future. The culture of the church by default is a culture for children. I want to prove that to you tonight through the scripture, but I want you to know that the culture of the church is a culture for children. I was having a, a conversation at a birthday party some time ago. We had, uh, went, we had traveled north to be at this birthday party, and there were several people from their church uh, that had came, and I was sitting talking to the youth pastor from that church, and we were talking back and forth about books and, and the things of the Lord. And he said, you know, hold on a second. I think there's somebody here who, who would enjoy this conversation. So this young man came over and, and we began to talk. And he said, bro, if, if you want to know something about history, you need to ask Jordan. He's your guy. And I, I looked at him. I said, man, I think you've got me confused with Stephen Gill. So I, I'm the better looking one of us too, but he, he's got the brains. If you're, and he's not here, that's why I can say that. I said, I think you're talking about Stephen Gill. I said, my, my history focus here recently has been very, very narrow. At the time, I was finishing up uh, my first book project, and I'd spent about two years uh, in hardcore study on, on rabbinic studies and the history of the Jewish people. And, and he kind of looked at me, and he said, uh, he said, bro, why have you been studying that? Why have you been studying the Jewish history so closely? I said, well, well that, thank God that's at least an easy question. I said, let me answer your question with a question. Don't you love it when people do that? I, I love them kind of people. I said, bro, let me, let me answer your question with a question. I said, how many of the books of your Bible uh, were written by Jews? He said, well, I guess all of them. And we could argue about Luke-Acts later. I, the argument that Luke was not, was not Jewish is very weak at best. You're going to lose the argument, but, but we can argue about that later. I said, bro, I, all of them were written by Jews. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to study a little bit the history and the culture. And before I could change the subject, he, he asked me a hard question. He said, well, what's the biggest thing that you've learned from those studies? I said, my God, man, I just came for some birthday cake and ice cream. I, was, I wasn't prepared to give a dissertation. On, I said, well, there's, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about. We could talk about the power of parable and, and how Jesus operated in a, in a longstanding tradition of parables. We, there's so many things we could talk about. I said, bro, the, the biggest thing that I have learned in these last two years of study is that this culture, and when I reference this culture, I'm talking about the God culture. The culture that God established through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The God-created society, the God culture, is a culture that is wholly surrounded by, wholly centered around, and wholly devoted to children. 
So the biggest thing that I've learned in the last two years of study is that the God-created culture is a culture for children. The emphasis is all throughout your Bible. If I can very quickly take you through a few verses tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 9 says, Take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But somebody say, teach them. Thy sons. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse number 9. But teach them thy sons and thy sons. Sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, that they may teach their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 7, we read it in our opening text. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto Thy children, and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 20. It continues on and says, When your son asks of you, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say unto your son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse number 19. And you shall teach them your children. Somebody say, teach. You shall teach your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You will find it all throughout your Bible that it is the obligated duty of a parent To teach your children. It is a biblical obligation, mom. It is a biblical obligation, dad, to teach your children. Say, well, I'm just going to leave the teaching to the school teachers. Let me stop you right there. Especially if they're not in an apostolic school, let me stop you right there and tell you how bad of an idea that is. There are things being taught in public schools all across this nation right now that would make a grown man's stomach turn. You you better not just be relying on the teachers of the public school system to raise up your kids. Your kids need you, mom. They need you, dad. They need you to teach them the ways of God. My mother sent me an article yesterday. It was talking about how a federal judge, thank God, actually had a ray of common sense shine down upon him. And he struck down an appeal to a House bill that was passed earlier this year in Indiana, House Bill 1608. This bill requires teachers in Indiana to tell parents if their child wants to go by a different name. It also bans teaching kids about sexuality from kindergarten through third grade. And I thank God that we have a law like that. I thank God that there was a federal judge who had enough sense and morality to strike down the repeals against that law. I'm thankful for people who are standing to protect our children. But church, hear me tonight. When we are at the place in society where we need laws to protect our kindergartners and first graders and second graders and third graders from the sexual perversion of this world, we are in a messed up place in our society. You can't you can't rely on the school system to teach your kids right and wrong. You can't rely on this world to teach your kids the difference 
between right and wrong, but there need to be some parents in the apostolic church that stand up and say, not my children. It's not going to happen to my kids. Before they step in a classroom, they need to know, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. Before they ever step into that school, they need to know that God created them male and female, created he them. If God created them to be male, they need to know that God made them to be male. If God created them to be female, they need to know that God did not make a mistake. He made them in his image. We need parents who are willing to stand up and say before my kids are exposed to the mess of this world, they are going to be exposed to truth in my home. It starts in the home. I'm talking about a culture for children. This focus on children, on teaching children, it wasn't something that that was a later addition. It wasn't something that was a late add-on from God in the giving of the law. But the emphasis on children, it begins at the very beginning of the Abrahamic story. I've got a question for you tonight. And I'm sure many in this room already know the answer, but... Why was it that God chose Abraham to be the father of the faithful and not Noah? Noah heard the voice of God. Noah responded and acted to the voice of God. It's because of Noah that you and I are here right now. Thank God for brother Noah. It was through Noah that we get the covenant of the rainbow in the sky, which by the way is a covenant of love, not a symbol of lust. In case anybody missed it, I'm going to say it again. We, because of Noah, we have a covenant in the sky. That rainbow belongs to the Lord. It is a covenant of love, not a representation and a symbol of lust. But why is it that God chose Abraham and not Noah to be the father of the people of God? Why, why is it that Abraham was counted worthy to be father of the faithful while Noah was not? Well, it's certainly a valid thing to say that Abraham was a man of faith. After all, it was by faith, Hebrews 11 and 8, that Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he went. I'm thankful for men and women of God who obey the voice of God even when they don't know the outcome. Thank God for faith. He surely was a man of faith, but is that the sole reason he was chosen to be father of the faithful. You get to reading in your Bible through the book of Genesis and you get down to the 18th chapter, you find that God shows up and he asks Abram, says, Abram, where, where's Sarah? Where's your wife? He says, Sarah is in the tent. Somebody say she's in the tent. And God starts speaking to Abraham. He says, I will return to thee and Sarah and your wife will have a son. And Sarah heard the voice of the Lord. And you got to know about this, that Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Can I take a quick commercial break and let you know tonight that Sarah was not laughing at God. Laughing at God, mocking the miraculous never works very well for you. 
If you want to know how that works, go over to the New Testament when Jesus walks into a room and says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they begin to laugh and they begin to mock. And God had to put the mockers out of the room before the miraculous could enter in. Mocking the miraculous never goes very well for you, but that's not what Sarah was doing. It says she laughed within herself. The literal translation of this says that Sarah laughed at her insides. She was old and stricken in years. She did not have the ability to produce what God was promising her. So she laughs at herself. She says, God, I I think you've got the wrong person. You're talking about big things, but I think you need somebody that's more talented. You're talking about big things, but God, I think you need somebody that's just a little bit younger. God, you're talking about big things, but I think you've got the wrong person for the job. And and God looks down and says, no, Sarah, I, I think you've misunderstood me, honey. Genesis 18, 14, he says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah, I never asked for your ability. All I wanted was your availability. I don't care whether you or not you think you can do it. You don't have to be able to do it on your own. All you've got to do is say, God, I'm here. God, I am available. Can I preach to somebody tonight that God has been talking to you, but you've had a wrestling mind match in your mind of whether or not it can happen? Can I settle that debate for you? If God spoke it to you, he can do it through you. It doesn't matter if you think you can or not. With God, all things are possible. All you've got to do, all he's looking for is somebody to throw up your hands and say, God, here am I. Sarah, I don't need your ability. I only need your availability. God likes doing things so big that only he can get the credit for He likes using people so weak that it shows how strong he is. He likes doing things that you can't even begin to say, yeah, that was me. But you just got to say, I don't know how he did it, but God saved my whole family. I don't know how he did it, but every time I look around, miracles are manifesting. I don't know how he used me to do it, but you ought to see that line of Bible studies that have led to baptisms, that have led to Holy Ghost. I don't know how God used me to do it, but I'm sure glad he did. And it's right after that realization that we get the answer to the question, why did God choose Abraham to be the father of the faithful? Genesis chapter 18 and verse number 19. I want to answer that question for you tonight. Why did God choose Abraham to be the father of the faithful? The Bible says, for I know him. This is the Lord speaking. I know Abraham. And I know that he will command, here it is again, his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. This on the miraculous nature of birth. It's, it's too far gone for Sarah to bear children. She's too old. They don't have the ability. So, so Sarah tries to circumvent the plan of God because I know nobody in here has ever been patient, ever been impatient waiting on God to work in your life. I know I've never been a little impatient waiting on what God told me he would do, but I just, you know, God, I think let's do it, let's do it a different way. So Sarah takes her handmaid and Abraham lays with her and they give birth to a child and And Abraham responds to the Lord in this passage we just read. He said, oh, Lord, may Ishmael walk with thee. But it will will not be so. God has a a lesson he needs to teach Abraham in this moment. 
says, no, Abraham, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to establish my covenant with something that was produced outside of covenant. Abraham, I can't use Ishmael. I can't give Ishmael the covenant because he was a child produced outside of covenant. Abraham, there's a lesson that I want to teach you, and I believe it's a lesson for the church today, that you do not have to step outside of the covenant to produce children. You do not have to abandon the covenant to grow your church. You do not have to abandon the ways of God to grow your church. There are too many churches today that have lain with Hagar and produced children outside of the covenant, and they lift them up to God and ask God for a prize. You want to know how to get a church that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof? That doesn't have the power. You have a church that starts producing children with the world. Hagar was from Egypt. She was worldly. And when he started producing things outside of the covenant, he thought God was going to bless it. But church family, I want to tell you tonight, we don't have to leave the covenant to produce children. We don't have to leave holiness to produce children. We don't have to leave the ways of God, the teachings of God, the word of God, to see revival sweep through this city. We can have revival and stay in covenant. I'm not interested in being part of a church that looks right but doesn't have power. I'm not interested in a church that has put together programs but no power. Give me the church with signs. Give me the church with miracles. Give me the church with wonders. Give me the church where people's lives are being changed. Give me the church where people are being born again in the blood of Jesus. Give me the church where the Holy Ghost is being poured out upon all flesh. You can keep the stuff out of covenant. Give me the church of the living God. God says, I'm sorry, but I can't honor Ishmael. He was born outside of covenant. It matters how children are produced. In Genesis 21, we read about the birth of Isaac. He is the child of promise. In Genesis 22, the very next chapter, I I don't know what it says in your Bible, but my Bible says Isaac to be offered as a sacrifice. It's a pretty short jump from when we get to I'm giving you the promise, and now you're going to have to go up on a mountain and sacrifice the promise. That's a pretty short jump. But make no mistake, Isaac was no small boy during all of this. There's, there's different accounts as to exactly how old Isaac was, but our best estimation is that he was somewhere between the age of 20 and 30 years old as he walked up the mountain with his father. There's a recording in history that says when they got to the top of the mountain that he requested of his father, he said, Father, bind me tightly lest I tremble. You know, we, we preach about this story, and it's a powerful story. We, we preach about how Abraham says God will provide himself a lamb. And my God, you can preach the paint off the walls with that. We preach about how Abraham had so much faith that he believed God could raise up Isaac from the dead. If it was God's will for him to die on that altar, you, you, we can talk about the faith. But there is a simple, simple principle in this passage that I think we overlook. Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 7. When Isaac speaks to Abraham, his father, and he says, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb 
for a burnt offering. I think sometimes we take it for granted that Isaac recognized the preparation for sacrifice. He saw the wood, he saw the fire, and he didn't ask his father, Father, where are the ingredients for s'mores? We have wood, we have fire, but we haveth not Hershey's. I, I don't understand what's going on. I thought we were coming out here for a good time. No, 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 no. Isaac recognized the preparation for sacrifice. So my question for you tonight is where did Isaac learn how to prepare sacrifice? Where was it that Isaac learned to trust the provision of God? Where did Isaac learn to trust the motive of God? Because if you don't trust the motive of God, you're going to have a hard time trusting anything else from God. You've got to believe it is impossible to please him without believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You've got to believe that he is good. Where did Isaac learn that God was good? Because it's easy to look around and say, if God was actually good, he wouldn't ask me to sacrifice this. Where did Isaac learn to trust the motive of God? Where was Isaac between his birth and his binding? The answer is simple. He was in Sarah's tent. Somebody say Sarah's tent. The phrase Sarah's tent, it doesn't evoke quite a visceral response in contemporary Christianity as it, as it has throughout Jewish history. To us, it just sounds like a place where they slept or maybe a place where they prepared meals. But there is something so powerful and divine about Sarah's tent. After the death of Isaac's mother, the Bible very strongly implies that Isaac was unable to be comforted. When Sarah died, there was a missing piece in his life. There was a void left in his life at the passing of his mother. And it was not until Rebekah came into his life that Isaac could find any comfort at all. Genesis 24, 67, and Isaac brought her into his mother, Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. He found comfort in Sarah's tent. So what is so special about Sarah's tent? Well, it wasn't the most beautiful tent on the market. It wasn't the largest tent made out of the finest embroidery. No, Sarah's tent was a home of holiness. Sarah was a godly woman, but not just a godly woman. She was a godly mother. She may not have had the nicest house or drove the nicest car, but when you walked into Sarah's tent, you could feel the afterglow of the miraculous. She may not have had the nicest things in life, but when you walked into Sarah's tent, you, you could feel somebody's been praying in this tent. When you walked into that tent, you knew there there wasn't the implements of the world. There was holiness. There was shamefacedness. There was sobriety. When you walked into that tent, you could feel the presence of God. <coughs> when you walked into Sarah's tent. The Israeli scholar Tamar Frankel, she was studying rabbinic commentary that directly connected the temple in Jerusalem to characteristics that were first displayed in Sarah's tent. And she concluded from these commentaries, she writes this. The implication is that the holiness of Sarah's life was like that of the temple itself. And that Rebecca echoed Sarah in every way. Sarah's tent is so special because it was the example of what a godly home looked like. I want to tell you tonight, church family, that Sarah's tent was a tent of teaching. 
I know I've slowed down for just a moment tonight, but I want to get this into your spirit. Sarah's tent was a tent of teaching. It was in Sarah's tent that Isaac learned how to love the Lord. Not in the schoolhouse, in the tent. It was in Sarah's tent that Isaac learned to trust the Lord. And not in the classroom, in the tent. It was in Sarah's tent that Isaac learned to love holiness. Not in the world, at home, in the tent. I believe that it was in Sarah's tent where Isaac learned to respect and to honor sacrifice. Why? Because because Sarah's tent was the tent of teaching. This is why it was so adamant that the promise go through Isaac and not Ishmael. Because Ishmael will be raised in Hagar's tent. But the promise must be raised in Sarah's tent. Why? Because it's a tent of teaching. It's a tent that every time you go in there, you can feel the presence of God. It's a tent that when you rise up, the word is being spoken. It's a tent that when you lay down, the word is being taught. It's a tent that when you go about your way, there is something different because the presence of the all. Almighty God raises and rests upon Sarah's tent. There is something powerful about Sarah's tent. Can I connect some language for you from the Old Testament to the New Testament? In the Old Testament, the children of promise are those who dwell in the tent of teaching. Somebody say the tent of teaching. If we want the promise of revival poured out in Anderson, it's going to require some modern day tents of teaching. It's going to require some homes that open your tent up to Bible studies. It's going to require some homes where you open your door up to prayer meetings. It's going to require some people who throw your door wide open and say, you don't have to wait till Sunday to hear the word of God. You don't have to wait till midweek Bible study to hear the word of God. Why don't you come in my tent? My tent is a tent of teaching. We need parents teaching the word. To their children in the morning when they rise up and in the evening when they lay down. When Moses stood before the children of Israel, before they walked into their promise, he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse number 6. These words which I command thee this day, they shall be in thine heart. Deuteronomy 4 and 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Moses assumed That when Israel got to their promise, they would start having children. And that they would start teaching their children. If you flip over to the New Testament in your Bible in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up before the crowd in Acts chapter 2 in verse number 38. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ For the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter assumed that when the promise came to you, that you would begin producing children. And I'm not just talking about physical children. I'm talking about spiritual children. It's been said a million times before me, but let this preacher echo what the ministry has spoken. You were not filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost just to sit on a church pew. But when God filled you with his spirit, it was assumed that you would begin producing children. It was assumed that you would begin teaching children the ways of God. 
He didn't save me just to go through the motions. He didn't save me just so I could take up a seat. But when the promise came to me, it was the assumption, not the exception. Not just the leadership of the church, not just the pastor, not just the bishop, not just the evangelism team. It was assumed when you received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you would begin to produce children. And can I stop for just a moment and remind you that the promise is unto you? If you are under the sound of this preacher's voice tonight, the promise is unto you. I don't care how many mistakes you've made. I don't care how many times you've messed up. The Holy Ghost is for you. You don't have to be special to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you are here and you are breathing, you can receive the Holy Ghost. It was the assumption, not the exception, that children would be produced when you receive the promise. I spent some time this afternoon talking to the Lord, asking him what he would, what he'd have me to, to bring to his children tonight. And it was one of those moments where he spoke so clearly and so quickly and, and so strangely. I wasn't really sure if it was him that said it at all. I don't know if you ever felt like that, but God speaks something, you're like, ah, that one was probably me, though. And I kept praying, and the Lord kept confirming what, what he had just spoken to me. I said, God, are you, are, you sure? are you sure about that one? I asked the Lord, I said, God, what, what would you have me to tell your people tonight? And as clearly as I'm talking to you right now, I felt the Lord impress on my spirit. He said, there are churches in this nation and even in this city that have been on spiritual birth control. Now you know why I wasn't sure if that was me or not. I said, okay, God, you're going you're to have to help me a little bit with that one. What, what, what are you talking about? He said, I want you to tell my people, the church at large, to get off the spiritual birth control. I said, God, what, 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 are, what is this you're talking about? So there are churches in this nation, there are churches in this city right now who are happy and satisfied with the marriage, but don't want the children. There are churches and congregations all across this world that are satisfied with the benefits of marriage, but do not want the responsibility of teaching the children. And I've simply come to this place tonight to say, God, if they don't want it, give it to us. God, if they don't want it, give us the children. If they don't want it, give us the revival. Give us the tents of teaching. Give us the homes that teach Bible studies. Give us the troubling of the waters of baptism. Give us the new babes. Give us the new conversions. Give us the revival. God, if they don't want it, we want the children. Oh, I wish a Rachel cry would begin to move in the sanctuary tonight. God, give us children or else we will die. I wonder if there is a Hannah cry in the room tonight that says, God, don't forget your servant, but give us children. God, if they don't want the responsibility of teaching the children, let them come to my home. God, let the door to my home be open. Let Bible studies be taught in my living room. Let Bible studies be taught on my couch. Let Bible studies be taught in the tents of teaching.
God if they don't want to give it to FPC Anderson. Hey, shut up, my. Bye. I don't know what to teach them. Well, there's a story that's told. Uh, it's an old, old story that there was a, a group of rabbis that were all together in a room. And, and the question was posed. They said, what is the most important thing to teach your children? And there were distinguished people standing up. One, one man got up and he said, we must teach them about the oneness of God. It's a good answer. Our children need to know about the oneness of God. And another one stood up and said, I think the most important thing to teach them is to love God with all their heart, all their might, all their soul, all their strength. It's a good answer. Another one stood up and said, you know, I, I think it's most important to teach them to love God, but also to hate evil. But that's a good thing to teach them. And one elder stood up, wise old rabbi, and he, he said, I think it is of utmost importance that we teach our children how to swim. Now, I imagine the, the looks in the room were pretty similar to the looks right now in this room. Who invited that guy? Uh, uh, they say, I, you're going to have to justify your answer. We're talking about serious matters over here. We're talking about the oneness of God. We're talking about loving God. What is this swimming nonsense? And the wise old rabbi stood up and he said, the word of God obligates us to teach our children those things that their life may depend upon. If you don't know what to teach somebody in your tent, just teach them those things that their eternal life depend upon. Teach them that no man can enter or see the kingdom of God unless they are born again of the water and of the spirit. Teach them that they're not going to have a very good eternal life if they haven't repented of their sins, been baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins and been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Teach them that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Teach them those things that their eternal life may depend upon. Brother Hardy, you hit the nail on the head, sir. You don't have to be the highest qualified person in the land. You don't have to have a degree from a Bible college. You don't have to have a degree in divinity. You don't have to be the most established and eloquent orator the world has ever known. All you've got to do is be filled with the Holy Ghost. You've got to be baptized in His name. And you've got to open the doors to establish a tent of teaching in your home. Establish a tent of teaching in your workplace. God, give us boldness to establish tents of teaching. As the music makes their way tonight, there is one, one point I want to leave you with. That is simply that a culture for children is a selfless culture. A culture for children is a selfless culture. There's an ancient commentary on scripture that says this. It says, the love of parents goes to their children. But the love of these children goes to their children. When I was born, brought into this world all the way back in the 1900s. My parents clothed me. They, they fed me. They took me to surgeries. I, I, I don't know. I had a, a surgery or two every year until I was six or seven years old. I, I'm talking about medical bills. They cut me open and, and fixed my stomach when I was three weeks old. I'm talking about some medical bills. My, my parents paid some money for this guy right here. And when I, when I turned 18, 
my, my birthday present from my parents. I got a, a manila envelope. And inside that envelope was a stack of spreadsheets. And it, it had listed every expense it ever spent on me. Every, every bottle, every, every diaper, every surgery. And at the back of it, it had a contract for me to sign that said, you know, all this is due within 25 years plus 3% interest. <laughs> Lord, forgive me for lying. That's why I got in front of the pulpit. I wasn't going to lie behind the pulpit, God. That's absurd, isn't it? But yet we'll teach Bible studies. We'll pour into people. We'll invest in people. And when they walk out, we say, God, well, I'm not going to teach another Bible study because I didn't get anything out of it. There are people that my wife and I have invested in. We, we've taught Bible studies. We've took them out to dinner. We, 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 we've taught them. We've loved them. And they're not sitting here tonight. I wish they were, but, but sometimes that's what happens. But it's okay because the love of a, of a parent goes to their children. And the love of those children go to their children. God, believe that God is looking for some people in Anderson, Indiana, who are willing to be selfless with your love, who are willing to be selfless with the gospel, who's willing to be selfless with your homes, who's willing to be selfless with your time, who's willing to be selfless with your pocketbook, who's willing to be selfless to teach the children all across this place. I wonder if you would stand to your feet and lift your hands unto the Lord. If God has pricked your heart tonight, I've asked the Lord that he'd begin laying faces and names onto the hearts and minds of people in this room right now who you know you could teach a Bible study to. And I'm asking the Lord tonight to pour out boldness across this assembly, to pour out boldness of the Holy Ghost in your heart, to open up your home as a tent of teaching. I believe to my core tonight that a culture of revival looks like a culture for children it looks like us preparing our homes not just for our physical children but for a place to birth spiritual children it looks like us doing whatever it takes to invest in the tent of teaching it looks like you teaching on bible study it looks like you buying somebody coffee it looks like you making somebody dinner it looks like the church of the living god creating a culture for children God, right now I pray that you would begin to release any boldness into your people. God, I pray that you would begin to sanctify some homes in this congregation. Lord, that there would be Bible studies that are taught over kitchen tables. God, let there be Bible studies and conversions that happen sitting around the couch, sitting in our homes. God, let your presence rest on the homes of these precious people. I wonder right now if you could connect with somebody close by you. And if you would begin to pray that God would use them. That God would allow his anointing to rest upon them. I rebuke and I bind every lying spirit that has tried to tell you that you can't teach a Bible study. That you can't lead somebody closer to God. I rebuke every lying spirit that has spoken into your life and told you that you're not qualified. That nobody will listen to you. I release a boldness of the spirit over your mind and over your life today. In the name of Jesus. God, give us revival. Give us children. Give us a boldness in the name of 